The rest of us, if you grab a Bible, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 119 this morning. Psalm 119. Uh, for those of you who were around here last week, you missed me. Maybe you didn't miss me. I wasn't here. That's a better way to say that, right? Uh, we had uh, Glenn Hershberger, who is the head of church uh, planting and, and uh, strategic partnership uh, with Converge Great Lakes here. Uh, he came for us. And so uh, for, for some of you, maybe you don't know this, uh, we partner with an organization that is called Converge. And so voluntarily we're in kind of cooperation with, in the, the state of Wisconsin, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, about 120 other churches who connect with the purpose of proclaiming the gospel in all of our state. And uh, if you count the UP, I don't know who's you know, nobody counts the UP for anything, uh, but in that, they kind of latch on is, as well with that, um, and so the goal is that we would bring together like-minded churches in partnership together, noting that we can reach more people with the gospel in those partnerships, and then, and then among that is to strengthen churches and try to make them healthier to start new churches and watch the gospel go forth into communities that haven't been reached very well, right? And so um, coincidentally, what I did was this past week, one of the churches that we partner with that we kind of helped start years ago uh, in Edgerton, Wisconsin, uh, was looking for somebody to come fill their pulpit for them that week. And so I said, I'll come over and preach hopefully be an encouragement to you uh, while Glenn was coming here to be an encouragement for us. And so praise the Lord that you kind of watch again. Like we're always looking for those ways to remind ourselves that we exist here in one small piece, small pocket of the world, and yet God is at work in all of the earth doing some amazing and incredible things. And so anytime we can kind of remove ourselves from just one small context and begin to have an outward focus in what it looks like to watch the gospel go forward, uh, we should, we ought to, and praise the Lord that we get an opportunity to do that. And so uh, thanks that we can be a part of that. I will, I will mention this. He uh, like began, if you were here, he kind of began with this like scare tactic of like every pastor in America is, qu-. I think he said three out of 10. He's like, they just are so stressed and they're quitting. Like, I don't feel that way. You don't have to worry. Like, I'm not about to quit. Or maybe you can't celebrate that I'm not about to quit because uh, praise the Lord, we're, we're so thankful for you. And so uh, this, just God's doing some incredible things here. Uh, and so there, you are a source of great joy. Stick with it, right? Continue to, to press on in the word of the Lord, uh, which is where we'll actually spend the bulk of our time this morning. So I'm going to pray with you, and then let's head into Psalm 119. Father, we are grateful, uh, just, just grateful for the work that you are doing in our midst among us. We pray that you would continue to make us a people who bear fruit in the truth of who you are, that uh, you would ground us and root us in the scriptures, that we would be a people who uh, see the, the truth of the fullness of your revelation to us in the word of God as so vital, so directing, so steering in our life above all other things that we would find ourselves saying that we light in your word, that it is of great value and joy for us. And so uh, I know that that's hard to get to at times, and so I pray that your spirit would work to bring us to that place uh, and, and let this morning be an opportunity to help with that, a time where we could find joy and delight in your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Hey, uh, we're, we're now in the third week or so in a series that uh, we're going to take a couple more weeks with still uh, that we simply entitled According to the Scriptures. So we, we kind of built this idea that we would spend some time really laying uh, something that we feel like is very foundational to who we are and what we do, which is that the bulk of our time on an average Sunday morning is spent just examining the Bible, reading it and interpreting it. And then uh, normally it's a pretty short sliver of that spent kind of expelling out like, okay, what does that look like for us applicationally? But we want to really ground ourselves in the truth of what God has actually told us. And in fact, we would say so foundationally that we believe that God's clearest form of revelation for us, uh, so most clearly telling us what life is about, comes here through his word. And so over the course of the the last few weeks and the upcoming weeks or two, uh, we're looking at things that we ought to do and ought to feel and ought to be when it comes to the way that we interact with or treat the scriptures, the Bible, the word of God. And so uh, we started out a couple weeks ago uh, three weeks ago, actually, said you, you ought to trust the Bible, first of all, and so we walked through some reasons for that. Uh, we even recommended, and I, and I got some more copies of this, so I wanted to mention it. Uh, we recommended a book in the lobby uh, called Why Trust the Bible. That's really just kind of a condensed version of understanding apologetically, like why that is worthwhile and a good thing. And so if you're a reader uh, and, and kind of interested in that, feel free to take a copy of that book. In fact, uh, one of the things that we've, we've kind of begun doing is, is we really believe that if you could read good authors and spend time studying, uh, it would help you in your walk with Christ and your Christian maturity. And so we're just buying a bunch of copies of books that we find as good and trustworthy and leaving them out in the lobby. Just take them. Uh, If you want to pay for them, just add $10 to your offering. Uh, If you don't give an offering, just put $10 in the box. Uh, If you don't want to pay for it, just take the book. That's fine with us as well. Read it, though. Like, don't take them and use them as coasters in your house, right? Like, actually read the books. Uh, We're going to use that as a way to really endorse what we feel like are good, trustworthy, helpful things for you to grow in your walk with Christ. And so we began in that a few weeks ago and said, uh, what should we do with the Scriptures? First and foremost, we ought to trust them, even trust them more than our own thoughts, our own emotions, our own ideas, more than the news media, more than the world around us, more than anything else. Scripture is truth and the standard of truth. And while you could interpret it really poorly and incorrectly, and that wouldn't be trustworthy, the right interpretation of Scripture will always lead us in what is truth. And so it is trustworthy. And then the week after that, we said along with trust, the two words we added to it were that we would know and obey the Scriptures, that we should actually spend time in them so that we might know what they are, and then we should actually do what they tell us to do, that we should be a people that respond in obedience. And so uh, we continue to kind of build on that. And and I'm going to say today, uh, we sort of put one that is overarching to those three and really encompassing and and motivating toward those three, uh, because I'm going to tell you that I believe we're meant to be a people who delight in the scriptures. Uh, And and so we'll talk about what that means in a second, but let me just kind of help you with why I think that's so important for the first three, to trust them, to know them, and obey them, Uh, because ultimately, you tend to know, obey, and trust the things that you delight in, and you tend not to the things that you don't delight in. Let me give you a really uh, practical human example so you can kind of walk along with me in this. Um, I know my wife better than I know any of you, right? Uh, I 
I understand things about her that you don't understand. Uh, I perceive, sometimes, I perceive things that you don't perceive, not every time, but I can, through eye contact and through looks and through uh, the way that she breathes or her posture or some subtle things, right, sometimes, I can understand what she's thinking and what she expects, even if she maybe is expressing or verbalizing something a little bit different than that. Amen? Men, you're like, no, never. That's actually one of the big problems in our marriage. Yeah, Reg is trying for extra credit there, and I see the smile that Carol has, and I can tell that she doesn't believe you, right? So she can, she can certainly give that to you, right? And so, so in that, right, there's this kind of level of knowledge that comes along with it. Uh, not only that, if she's going to give me some type of advice or some type of leading or, or maybe kind of mention, hey, you ought to do this, generally speaking, I'm going to be obedient and uh, considering of that truth, right? Uh, so she goes, hey, you know, put some deodorant on, right? I, I don't need further explanation from that. I'm just going to know that she is somebody who has enough care for me that she's right. I smell and I'm just going to go and handle that. And so uh, in that, there is a degree of trust, there's a degree of knowledge, there's a degree of obedience that all comes from what? Well, first and foremost, it comes from the fact that I delight in my wife and she delights in me, that we've uh, found ourselves to connect in a way that values one another. And so even when, here's, here's where this really kind of works in a healthy marriage, right? Even when I'm inclined at first to think what she is saying, doing, thinking, acting upon is disagreeable to me, there is a greater degree of me giving her the benefit of the doubt than I would give to you. Amen? You better know that it is true. If you don't know that's true, it is true. Uh, she does something dumb, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. You do something dumb, you might not get that lucky, right? It just depends on my mood at that point, right? And so in that, in fact, I'll contrast it even harder. When, when I got out of college, I started working at J.P. Morgan Chase. I was doing financial advising, um, very like strong corporate environment. I was going okay. I got about a year in and my boss moved to a different role and I got a new boss, Mike. Mike came in, came my boss. The first interaction I had with him was like a very long lecture about why I wasn't wearing a sport coat uh, with my shirt and tie. If you know me, you know that that's not going to go over super well. Uh, I don't dress up unless, I, unless somebody died, right? Or they're getting married, I guess, is the other one, right? And so, so in that... Uh, we, we kind of get off on the wrong foot, and then not only that, like some things kind of go, and he's my boss, right, in a corporate environment. So you can imagine, like my level of delight in Mike was, remains to this day, relatively no, low, right? Here's, here's what I can promise you. When he instructed me to do something, if I obeyed, it was begrudgingly, right? There, there's always that level, that layer of defiance, like... I'll do this, but I'm not happy about it, right? If I listened to him, it was with a critical or uh, skeptical spirit to anything that he might say because I'm just kind of trying to find a way to show that he was wrong about whatever it might be. I don't even care what it was to prove him wrong. My level of trust in his instruction or his interaction was next to nothing, amen? You have a boss like that? Dave's, Dave's on vacation, Katie's out of the room, so I can ask that question so freely, go, hey, nobody's raising their hand, uh, that's going to concern me. Uh, but in this, right, you can see that as you 
vary the level of delight, it has an effect on the amount that you trust something, the amount that you know something, the amount that you obey something. And so we said all along over the first couple weeks that the hope is, the desire is that we would be a people who in the power of the Holy Spirit know the Bible, we trust the Bible, and we obey the Bible. However, we know all along that if that's just kind of guilt trip heaped on you, that it is bound to fail. Right? In fact, if the reason you spend any time in the Scripture is uh, only because you know that obligatory, you should, and you, you never find any joy in it, and you never find any obedience in it, and you never find any delight in it, that ultimately that self-discipline only lasts for a while. It's why so many times in January start a Bible reading plan, and you get to Genesis chapter 16, and you quit, right? That's, that's why so many times there's some layer of like, I'm going to actually do it this time, and nobody's ever made it through the book of Numbers, ever, right? Because in that self-discipline, like you get to a certain stage, but if there's no real delight in this as truth as something that is worth obeying, as something that is worth knowing, then ultimately it will always fall short. And so, so then the question then becomes, okay, so, so what does it mean then to delight in the Scriptures, and how do you get there, right? Because, because we know what our affections long for, uh, and yet I would say generally speaking as a people, we're not real good at steering our affections onto better things, right? I like what I like, and I don't like what I don't like, and how am I possibly going to change that? Well, Let's, let's kind of walk through it together, give some thought to it. I want to take you to Psalm 119. Let me just give you some quick context and background. Uh, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It is uh, a significantly uh, long, hearty love poem. Okay, so it's, in fact, the, the poem takes the form of an acrostic. So uh, if you, you know what that is, like every line in the poem begins with the same letter. Uh, for the first eight lines, every single line begins with the letter Aleph. That's the Hebrew letter that we, we would translate into an A, right? That Aleph uh, is now eight lines all starting with that letter. And then it goes on from Beit to uh, Gimel to Daleth, like all the way through. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So it's 22 sets of eight verses. Each verse begins with the same thing, and it is a love poem by its nature. The whole thing is about affections, delight, and the focus, the object of that love is the law of God the scriptures, the Bible. If that strikes you as odd, it did the first time I really thought or considered it as well, that the most significant, the longest, the weightiest love poem in all of the scriptures is focused, subject, rooted on not God himself, but on his precepts, his words to us. It's 176 verses. 169 of those verses mention his law, his commands, his precepts, his path, his instruction for us. And so it's, it's centerpiece over and over again. Let me just read you some of these verses and see where we get this idea that out of it, we're meant to be a people who really delight in the Bible. Verse 14, Psalm 119, verse 14, he says this, I have rejoiced 
in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. You give me all the money you want. This is more valuable. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. And then verse 16, it says this. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. You jump down to verse 23. He says, even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my, there's that word again, my delight. They are my counselors. You jump down to verse 5. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I, it's again, delight in it. Verse 47. I shall, you say it this time. That was pathetic. I didn't give you enough warning. Okay. You're going to say the word this time. I shall better, okay, in your commandments, which I love. And I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Verse 69, the arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. The heart, their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. Verse 77, may your compassion come to me that I may live for your law is my Yeah. Verse 92, if your law had not been my then I would have perished in my affliction. Seven, oh how I love your law. It is the meditation of all the day. Verse 143, trouble and anguish have come upon me. Now, now think about that, right? He's, he's giving some context to what's going on in his life right now. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my... Verse 174, for... I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. That over and over and over again, the author is going to come back to this idea that the law of God, the precepts of God, the statutes of God, the commandments of God, all synonyms for the scriptures themselves are his delight where he finds value. Now, if we're being honest about this room, I would generally think that we would find ourselves in some varying uh, degrees of tears when it comes to our approach or our understanding of the scriptures. I, th- I think there's a group of people, albeit if you're here on a Sunday morning, this is a small group, but I would bet that you're going to interact with groups like this throughout the normal uh, day in your week uh, that says the Bible though maybe it has some good moral accounts here and there, it's just generally an old book of antiquated stories and myths that doesn't have any real bearing in our life. That there's, there's a certain element or degree of people in our culture that would hold to that. Uh, ironically, most of them have never read the Bible, or if they have, they've read it with such a non-delighting, cynical approach to it uh, that they're not willing to actually listen to what it says or hear with uh, the way that, that Jesus talks about it is with ears to hear or eyes to perceive, but rather have focused on it as some piece of mythology or critical history and kind of stripped it of its value and importance. And so uh, that, that may very well be a couple of you in here. Uh, the bigger groups in here, I think, would be uh, one is, is kind of this major piece of what we define as Christianity in our culture that would say this, Bible's really great. Uh, in fact, 
sometimes it is useful for me in my life. Uh, When I think something or have something that I intend to do, uh, oftentimes I look for a Bible verse that will support whatever the heck it is I'm about to go do, even if that thing is generally not accepted in the whole of the Bible, but it is accepted in this one verse that I expect to use so that I can continue to walk in the liberty of whatever I please. Amen? You understand that? Don't raise your hand if that's you, but it is some of you. I I remember, um, it's kind of off script a little bit, I remember in college uh, I had somebody who was talking to me, I was explaining to them the scriptures, and I was talking about the cost of following Jesus. I said, you know, if you're going to be someone who really follows Jesus with all of your life, it will be a trade-off from some of the things that the world indulges in or tries to seek and find value in, which ultimately aren't valuable things at all, and so the world might really go after some of these things, and yet ultimately you're not going to find any worth in them and so you give those things up for Christ. And this guy that I'm eating lunch with goes, no, there's, that's not actually true. The Bible says that you should indulge and enjoy those things. And I said, I'm I, not like an expert, right? I don't have the whole thing memorized, but I don't think it says that. He says, no, the Bible says eat, drink, and be merry. I was like, man, I, didn't, I don't know. Doesn't sound right to me. We finish up lunch back to my dorm, right? This is like 2004. There was this new thing that was really becoming big. It's called Google. And so I just pulled up Google and I just typed in like eat, drink, and be merry. I want to see. And then I typed in Bible, right? Does the Bible say that? It does. Uh, In fact, it is in the book of Luke chapter 12. And then the very next word is actually spoken by Jesus in a parable. And you know what his very next words are? Fool. You fool. All right, right. But but here's here's what we have this tendency to do, right? There's a there's a big portion of Christianity that just takes the scriptures, you're going to pull whatever it is out of the context of what it actually says, and use it, manipulate, so we can just kind of walk through in our own way with our own intentions and do our own thing, uh, and not really treat it for what it actually says to us. Let it guide and instruct us. And and then I would say there's, there's a third group, and this is if I'm going to guess. This is probably the majority of us here this morning. Though some of you kind of waffle back and forth into some of these other groups. But the, but the biggest group, I think, is a whole lot of people who are faithful to the Lord or want to be, who believe the Bible and trust the Bible, generally speaking, or want to, right? Who want to know the Bible, who want to obey the Bible. Uh, and yet, really, you would say, well, the, God, the, the way that this guy talks about his delight and his value and his uh, love for the scriptures is just not me, right? Like, I'm, I'm battling to read this every day. I'm battling to, like, 15 minutes of, like, quiet devotional time is is like sometimes great, sometimes it's not happening, other times it's a chore, but that word delight just doesn't really resonate with me. I just don't find myself going, man, the thing that I want most right now is to sit down for a solid hour and just get enthralled, read, and spend time in the scriptures. Now, I I believe there are a couple of you saints that are like focused on that and praise the Lord for you, the heartbeat of the church in that, but, but I, th- I would say the majority kind of fall in that category. And so, so here's my question. Two, two things, and short today from this point forward. <laughs> it took us a long time to get here, but we're going short after that. 
What's it mean to delight in the Bible? And then, and then how do we actually get there? If most of us are going, well, okay, I'm buying that, but I'm not there, how does that change? Well, here's, here's what I think it, it means, right? That delighting in the Word of God would be to find great pleasure in this. It would be more than just trusting, obeying, or knowing the Bible, but rather that we would find joy and pleasure in the Scriptures. That delight, by the way that the Scripture defines it, is a connection with the Lord through the Scriptures. So, so let me give you a, a contrast to help you with this in the Bible. Uh, go back to 1 Samuel 15. You can turn there if you want to. You don't need to, but uh, in 1 Samuel, here's, here's what happened. The nation of Israel has lived in generational disobedience for hundreds of years. They were given a land that God had promised them. Uh, they had come into this land, and almost immediately after everything that God had told them had come to pass and promised them was happening, they begin to disobey him. They begin to forget about him. They begin to trust in things outside of who he is, and God uh, raises up adversaries. And, and so eventually what happens is as the adversaries increase, the people cry out and God in his mercy delivers them. That's the book of the nutshell. Just spirals over and over and over for generations. Several judges raised up after each one. The people go back to their own ways. This kind of Going of disobedience and returning happens again and again and again. Each time, the people get a little further away from the actual law of God and begin to get more and more about doing what is right in their own eyes. Eventually, this sort of culminates. Samuel, who is the last judge, has a couple kids who are in line to sort of take over leadership after him. The, uh, they're not really great guys. The people recognize that. And rather than trusting in the Lord to do what is good, they go, hey, Look at all the other nations around us. They got kings. Give us one of those. Samuel recognizes that this is ultimately disobedience against God. Uh, God lets Samuel know that this is ultimately the case and says, oblige them. Give them a king. I'll pick the guy. You'll know, right? And, and so he shows up. Uh, the king that they get is everything that a king was meant to look like in earthly standards. The, uh, the guy, Saul, stands, it says, uh, from the shoulders up above everybody else, right? So he's a head taller than all of the other guys in Israel. He's uh, an impressive, handsome, strong, helpful, like, good man from the worldly standards. In fact, uh, as he takes over the kingship, uh, Israel starts to succeed, right? They, they experience some level of prosperity. They're defeating enemies in battle. Uh, things are going relatively well. Saul's sort of at the hand of this uh, all the while exhibiting like these really heavy insecurities in leadership and like there's some warning signs, but, but ultimately it's going good. And so they're thankful for it. Samuel does this. He, he says, listen, you're going to go here. This is the battle the Lord has for you. And his instruction, after there's already, there's been some like issues going on now. Uh, and then it's going to culminate in this. Uh, you're going to go, you're going to win this battle by the hand of the Lord. And you need to get rid of everything. You're not taking plunder. You're not taking spoils. This is not your battle. This is the Lord's battle. So you destroy it all. You don't leave goats. You don't leave sheep. You don't leave people. You're done. Wipe this clean. And Saul doesn't. 
And, and so after this, as they return, uh, Samuel shows up and Saul has got the king that he just defeated in tow with a whole bunch of sheep uh, as kind of the reward for the victory that wasn't his victory to begin with. And so Samuel calls him out upon it and Saul says this, uh, I did obey the voice of the Lord and I went on a mission which the Lord sent me. And I brought back to Agag, the king of Amalek, and utterly destroyed the Amalekites. So I, I utterly destroyed them, just like God said. Except for the king that I'm holding uh, with me and going to put in my dungeon as a prize or reward for what I did. And uh, not only that, but there's also like a whole bunch of sheep that I kept as well. I took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Now whether that was actually his intention or not, we'll never know. But but his answer is kind of clever to Samuel. He goes, no, I just took these because I'm going to offer them up to God. That's, I, they're not for me, per se, you know. Uh, however, here's how Samuel responds, right? Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of Rams. He uses that same word, to delight. What does the Lord delight in? It wasn't the victory of Israel according to Saul, or even the justified kind of manipulation of obedience so that he could do what he wanted, but rather that he would delight in one that ultimately found the greatest value, the greatest worth, the greatest respect in who God was. We know this because here's what happens. The favor of the Lord falls away from Saul and David becomes the king of Israel. God goes to Samuel, goes, listen, I'm done with Saul. I'm going to find, and then he says this, I'm going to find a man after God's own heart. That was the idea of what it meant to delight in the Lord, was that the value would be placed on the heart of God. We know this because uh, what happens is David becomes king. Uh, a few 20, 30 years passes. David, as king, uh, is kind of living his good life up in his palace. And here's what he does. He does something that I think by human objective standards, far worse than what Saul just did. He uh, has an affair with another man's wife. And then to cover that up, he has that man murdered. Seem like a big deal? Probably more than like keeping some oxen alive. Amen? I don't know. It depends on how much you like oxen, I guess. Uh, big deal to me, uh, objectively, kind of not even in the same category. And yet, after this, David writes a psalm, we know it as Psalm 51, where in his repentance, he's confessing his sin before the Lord and recognizing what it would look like to be restored to God. And, and listen to what he says here. Verse 16, Psalm 51. For you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good design, build the walls of Jerusalem, and then listen to this. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in the whole burnt offering. Here's, here's what David got that Saul missed. That what it meant to delight, to take pleasure in, is ultimately an affection for, a love of, a desire to know God. 
What does it mean to delight in the scriptures? It means that our desire in reading the scriptures is that we would know, glorify, follow God, that we would take pleasure in what it looks like to know God. Well, so then how do we become someone who values, who delights, who takes pleasure in the word of God? Uh, I, think, I think there's three words that I would give you as a way to kind of walk you into delight. First of all, is that we ought to be a people who value the scripture more. And maybe you go, ah, I'm just, just not somebody who likes to read a lot. I just, don't, uh, I just don't even do that in my life in any way, shape, or form. Here's what I can promise you. I can promise you there are some things that you read with incredible care and precision. All right? I promise you. I, like I said, I worked at a bank. You know what would happen? When they would bring in a will and testament after a loved one had passed away, you think we were just skimming that or we were reading every single line? Every line. Right? In fact, that's the only time I'll give you my social security number. If you're in a will, you want beneficiaries. Right? Every line. With incred- I'm just teasing you. Don't write me into your will. Except for Whitney. Um, but in that, right, we, we would read that with such care and precision that we would know precisely and exactly what it says. Why? Because there's things of great value at stake. Right? I, I helped someone not too long ago with their retirement papers. You think we just skimmed through all of that and their contracts and what the rest of their life were going to look like when they got to finish up work and not have to go back anymore? We're in it pretty specifically. What do we have to do exactly? Where do you have to sign exactly? What do you have to write exactly? What, where does this money have to go and which account exactly? Right, So that we might know. Uh, you want to rewire part of your house? You better read that diagram with some specifics, right? Like, you ah, black, red, white, I don't know, just stick together. We don't do that, right? Because we think there's something of value at stake. And so in that, we read with precision and care. Here's, here's what I'm telling you. The reason that we ought to delight in the Scripture is because of immense value, more so than anything in life and death. In fact, when we read those verses, think about the context that he gives. Though princes sit and talk against me, the arrogance for the arrogant have forged lies against me. In my affliction all day, when trouble and anguish have come upon me, when I'm longing for salvation, Those are the times he's delighting in the law. That even in the worst of contexts, in the worst of life, nothing could be more valuable than the salvation offered by the Lord. Not only should we value the law, but uh, we should desire it. And and let me just kind of note this. That we're meant to be a people who not only knows it, but that we depend upon it. That that he calls uh, in this same psalm the word of God as a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. That in life, this would be the guide. That his path would ultimately be illuminated depending upon the word of the Lord. One, one story, and then we'll, we'll finish with the Lord's Supper this morning. But um, a few weeks ago, we had, a, we had a softball game for Clara's in, it was in softball. Uh, and, and we had to travel to Menominee, Illinois. At first, I was like, I'm not driving four hours for softball. That's, but you know there's like Menominee in like every single state around here, which is crazy. But anyways, beside the point, uh, we had to drive to the softball field in Menominee. It doesn't have an address. Anybody been, been there? A couple of you? Yeah. Uh, there's no address. There's no, and like, there's nine people that live in Menominee, so I'm sure they all know where the softball field is. I don't. And so uh, here's what we did. We just, we just plugged in Menominee and started driving, right? And then what 
became of that as we approached Menominee uh, was, like, like honestly, one of the larger arguments that my wife and I have had in like recent history uh, because I said, you've got to get us to the softball field. And she said, well, I think the softball field will just be here. And I said, I don't think it works that way. And she said, well, then, you, know, you see what's happening here? Like it doesn't matter what, and I'm just trying to delight in my wife at that point in time. And she's just trying to, uh, it, never mind. So, so then in that, here's, Here's what has a tendency to happen. So we delete the directions, and we're trying to find, like, said softball field, like, relying on the phone, and, like, there's not great signal service or whatever, you know, and, like, you're trying to, and, and all the while, I'm still in the car driving. And, and here's what I realized after the fact. I didn't realize this during the fact. I was just, like, a short jerk during all of that time, right, like, and just not very kind. Uh, but then after the fact, what I realized is, there is no more like frustrating, debilitating, uh, insecure, and awful feeling than traveling with no idea where you're going. Amen? Like a directionless travel is horrifying. And, and like, I, now, you could tell me afterwards, why don't you just pull over the car, you dummy? I don't know why. That's not part of the story, okay? What I do know is that in our lives, you, you go live a directionless life and you will find nothing more hopeless and helpless than that. You go, you go travel with no purpose. You go travel with no value. You go travel with nothing to depend on and you will arrive nowhere. Amen? Here's, here's what the author of the Psalms understood. You and I are meant to be a people who delight in the word of God that we would find value in the word of God because it can be depended upon. That you can see this as your guide, as your lamp. And then uh, most of all, in verse 174, reaching the very end of this psalm, he says, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. That in it, it gives us guidance to salvation, that ultimately what the scriptures profess again and again and again and again is that there is salvation, not in you and not in your ability to follow it perfectly and not in your ability to do it and not in your ability to be righteous in it, right? Read this, what you're going to find is that you stumble and fall again and again and again but rather that salvation through the word of God is found in Jesus Christ. That what we'll do to finish this morning is we'll spend some time taking the Lord's Supper, which is the remembrance of the salvation that is in Jesus declared according to the scriptures. In fact, listen to it this way. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That even in this, here's, here's the beauty, that Paul says he received it from the Lord and delivered it to us. That it came from the truth of the scriptures and delivered to us through the truth of the scriptures that we would remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus 
for us. And so as our, our young people join us again, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and then I'm going to ask our men to come up, and we're going to serve and take the Lord's Supper together.